0: Jar Jar Binks, you are listening to Behind the Lens.
1: And thank you for that, Jar Jar Binks. You, you most certainly are listening to Behind the Lens. And I'm sure that Jar Jar was in the theater seeing Star Wars The Last Jedi over the weekend, along with probably half the planet, considering the weekend box office is coming in at approximately $450 million, a.k.a. A half a billion dollars, with many more dollars to come, I am sure. Uh, I am still not giving away spoilers. I have still not posted a review because I want people to have more than just opening weekend with Star Wars to see it. Um, there is a lot to behold with it. And it is it is truly amazing. Uh, so maybe when we come back for the new year, maybe we'll still be talking about Star Wars. Because as many of you know, this is Behind the Lens. And this is our final show of 2017. And we're wrapping up our third year. So, Miraculous, I've got to thank every, I want to start off the show just thanking all of the publicists, all the talent who have been so generous with their time and scheduling to either come on the show live or allow themselves to be booked on the show or sit down and do interviews with me that uh, we get to play for all of you as we go behind the lens and below the line. Uh, For those of you new to the show today. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews around the world 24-7 in print and online, including BehindTheLensOnline.net. But you will find me right here every Monday on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. But uh, don't look for me on Christmas Day and New Year's because big big station boss Nick uh, is shutting down the station because he doesn't want to pay overtime to Pam who is our wonderful sound engineer and has been fabulous all year this year in our third year. Yay for Pam! So, it's a fun show that we're going to round out the year with today. Uh, Those of our regular listeners, you all know, last week we were talking about the Ballad of Lefty Brown and a man very dear to my heart. Uh, I've known for many, had the privilege and pleasure of knowing for many, many years. Uh, as we've gone through fruit orchards and cattle drives and horse ranches in Montana, Uh, but a lot of incredible films. Bill Pullman uh, is the star of The Ballad of Lefty Brown. This is his film. Co-starring with Bill, none other than Peter Fonda. For those of you that are going to watch the video of the show, or if you're watching Facebook Live right now, um, is is Nick doing a Facebook live stream now on AdrenalineRadio.com? All right, all of you listening, if you want to watch a one-camera angle, um, hello, Facebook Live people. Um, You can go to AdrenalineRadio.com on Facebook, and you can watch the show right now. And you can see the accoutrement laid out in our tablescape, uh, including this fabulous biography on Peter Fonda's dad uh, and Jimmy Stewart called Hank and Jim. Um, it's, it, all you classic film fans, if you haven't read it, if you haven't gotten the book, please, I urge you to do it. It is amazing. Uh, you will love it. Also, something else that we have here, I have to show it. The Muscles from Brussels, Jean-Claude Van Damme is back. He has, has a new show on Amazon Prime called Jean-Claude Van Johnson. Uh, he plays, of course, Jean-Claude Van Damme also known as super spy Black Ops guy, Jean-Claude Van Johnson. Co-stars Felicia Rashad, who is amazing. This is a performance you will never see anywhere else from Felicia. Um, Fans of her in the Cosby show and, and a lot of her dramatic performances that she's done. Let me tell you, Claire Huxtable has left the building. Felicia swears she shoots a gun. She even learned how to mimic the motions to start and take off in a helicopter Um, so it is a fun 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 series it is on Amazon right now I can't recommend it highly enough I've been saving my Van Damme bespoke chocolates uh, for Christmas so I will be thinking of Jean-Claude on Christmas as I eat his box of chocolates Um, but and of course Star Wars all of your Star Wars paraphernalia we have our Praetorian Guard here, and we have our Kylo Ren. Whatever you do when you hit his head and you get new faces. But, so, lots of fun stuff. You can find all of it in stores. You can find these great books in stores. I can't encourage you enough. Um, read the books. See the film. Uh, Goodbye, Christopher Robin, The Breadwinner, a fabulous animated film. Um uh, that I fully expect will end up with an Oscar nomination and be a hot contender opposite Coco for Best Animated Film of the Year come Oscar time. But on today's show, we are going to have two incredible guys. One who has been here on the show before two years ago, Phil Eloco, El writer and director of The Truth About Lies, is back with us. He joined us when the film was on the festival circuit. He now has a distribution deal through the wonderful guys at Blue Fox uh, that I've had the, pl- the privilege of speaking with before. They, are really, they really champion independent film. Uh, they have a, a very interesting distribution concept, and I'm very glad that they picked up Phil's movie. Joining Phil at the halfway mark is one of my faves, Fran Kranz. Uh, from the world of Whedon, um, Cabin in the Woods, Dollhouse, Much Ado About Nothing, uh, and he is the star of The Truth About Lies. Fran is amazing, and I had the chance to sit down with him earlier in the summer at L.A. Film Festival, where he took another took another look at Shakespeare with Casey Wilder Mott's A Midsummer's Night Dream. Uh, he, outstanding film. So we're going to follow up with Fran today and see if that film has managed to make it into the distribution stream as yet. But to have both those guys on at the halfway point, I am thrilled about. But before we get to Phil and to Fran, let's take another look at The Ballad of Lefty Brown. Writer-director Jared Moshe was on the show last week. Um, But I think it's only fair you get to hear a little bit from the star himself and his two cohorts. Tommy Flanagan and Peter Fonda. Uh, These are just small snippets because let me tell you, even these small snippets, because of the language that was, we were all tossing around the rooms. um, It was very hard to find even 30 seconds (laughs) that didn't have some form of inappropriate FCC verbiage in it. So I did have a chance though. I got to ask Bill about what was his, what was his first impression of this script when he, after he first read it. For you, Bill, mm. you, you get a script like this after you pick yourself up off the floor after reading this richness of material. Mm. What runs through your mind?
2: Well, I'm owning up today to tell Jared that I didn't know if I was up for the task. At the end of reading it, I thought, oh my God, I'll have to summon everything, you know, to get it out. There and what if I'm not I would hate to get it wrong you know to be three degrees off or something you know would be because everybody watching it that I care about wants it to be a hundred percent you know all the ranchers in Montana and mm-hmm. I wanted to be a great movie for them mm-hmm. and for uh, other actors who are my age, particularly who could have had a good shot to get it done also really well. I wanted to not let them <laughs> <have> fail. <laughs> so I was nervous.
1: But to see him on screen in Lefty Brown, you'd never know he was nervous. And if you have already seen Star Wars, Lefty Brown opened in theaters on Friday. So now that you need alternative movie going, I can't encourage you enough to go see The Ballad of Lefty Brown. But I also had to ask Peter Fonda and Tommy Flanagan, what do they look for in a script? You know, Tommy Flanagan, he comes off of Sons of Anarchy, Peter Fonda, Easy Rider, Yulie's Gold, 310 to Yuma, Outlaw Blues. He knows Westerns like the back of his hand. He grew up on sets when his father was doing Westerns. So what do they each look for? in a script today. What is it that you that each of you look for that draws you to a script like this? This is this script and then with, with Bill thrown in.
3: Bill was by the way, Bill was just epic oh, epic. Off the charts. Off oh, the freaking chart.
2: I'm I'm going to quote uh, Lily Tomlin uh, because she says it better than I can. When she looks at a at a part She takes all of her pages out and starts with the first page, looks at the end page to see if there's a change in character. In other words, an arc. Mm -hmm. It makes it worthwhile when you have an arc to play rather than just lines to read. When you actually have these two... And the arc, interesting in film, on stage that arc happens seamlessly. But on film, we shot the end end of of my part first. (laughs) And then we did the beginning, the last day, and... I couldn't shoot showing my right eye because it was so bloody. I'd, I'd gotten a contact lens cut in there, and, I mean, it just was, you couldn't see it, so I had to have that, that hat over that eye, and it it worked. And then I'm looking at the rest. Of, when I see the film out, I'm like, that's okay, that's great. I'm going to die. I'm dead. I did not want to die that way. And then he comes in. Tell me what you'd answer. What do you look for when a script comes your way?
3: Well, I mean, uh, sounds really basic, and base, But uh, I mean, I said to my agent, I've always loved western <coughs> like, stuff. Uh, I've said this a few times today, but I mean, seen your papa and western stuff, oh, yeah. and growing up, growing up with that stuff, and you know, I mean, I'm a lot younger than all you guys, but uh, <laughs> oh, <fucking laughs> I know, ah, <laughs> but but uh, but you know, growing up with beautiful westerns and. You know, just the old thing. I just, I've always loved westerns, and I said to my agent, "Get me a, I'd love to do a western." And then this, this it was sort of well, check this one out. Oh, wow! And it was the simplicity of it. It wasn't all this, uh, and then fly through the window on fire, oh, like you were saying earlier. Yeah. And then this blows up, and then the stagecoach goes boom, and then the sun, oh, this, it was just a simple, beautiful tale of. Love, betrayal, yes. and retribution, and all, yes. uh, all these things that should be in the Western and, and life, as suppose. But uh, and the brotherhood, like I was saying earlier, the whole brotherhood thing. And then when Bill showed me the photograph of all us together, riding together, I just thought it was beautiful. Yeah. I was in my element, I really was.
1: And, yes, it, once you see the film, you will agree that all of these gentlemen are very much in their element. Um, so there's just a few snippets that I was, I was actually, and I want you to know, Pam will be very proud of me. I did have to make six cuts in there (laughs) with Peter, with one, one with Bill and then five with Peter and Tommy in that short little span, (laughs) um, to keep the big boss happy. Uh, so they are a riot off screen, on screen, you couldn't ask for a better bunch of guys. But, you know, last week we also started talking about The Shape of Water uh, and Guillermo del Toro's masterpiece, uh, because that is truly what it is. And since we are hot and heavy in the awards season, as you all know, I sat down with our whole collection of below-the-line people, costume designer uh, Louis Seguera, VFX supervisor Dennis Barardi. Shane Mahan, the co-creature creator and project supervisor. Mike Hill, who you heard his interview on the show last week, the creature designer and sculptor uh, of the amphibian man in The Shape of Water. And then Paul Osterberry, the production designer. The production design is exquisite. So uh, trying to pick another element of The Shape of Water to familiarize you with. uh, To piggyback on Mike's interview, um, I want to let you hear, you know, a lengthy part of Paul Osterberry's interview as he talks about bringing the set design to life. Um, because it is it's very tricky in terms of color. Guillermo del Toro, as you heard Mike talk about, Guillermo's very specific, he knows exactly what he wants. And you'll hear and Paul talks about that as well, bringing Guillermo's vision to life. So let's take a listen to part 1. Part one. Yeah, Are we doing part one? Okay, we're doing... I had to break it into two just in case. So we're doing... I don't think you've done anything like this. I mean, no. You did not. Pompeii. You know, you did the, the Liberator. You've done other stuff, but nothing like this. This no. is, it has to be a production it's designer's special. dream. Yes, absolutely. And a little bit of a nightmare, I'm sure. You know,
4: you know, I've, you know it's intimidating working for a, a guy like Guillermo because he's... Got a huge appetite for design and high expectations, yeah. lofty expectations, which is great. Um, but surprisingly, it was, uh, you know, you're the, you want to please. But mm-hmm. like because he's so, um, you know, open and excited about it all and, and throws out ideas, he's got so many ideas he brings to the table, it's easier than if you don't have those ideas brought. Like if you have the full gamut to choose from, it's quite hard to, like, you know, narrow it down. But mm-hmm. if he's already narrowed it to here, you can, you can focus it much, yeah. much better. So uh, that's exciting. And, and, and the appreciation and sort of taste and quick decision-making, immediately he knows what he wants. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it's, tough when, it's tough when you have to deal with people who don't really know what they want. Or maybe they know what they want, but they have a hard time uh, explaining verbally or through mm-hmm. pictures or whatever. But Gamal can draw. He he pulls lots of reference, and he's obviously a, a very eloquent speaker, uh, much better than I am. So he he, he can tell you what he wants, mm-hmm. and then and then it makes it easier for you to, to you to develop it or translate it to your team to help develop it. It's it's like it was it was a joy, I have to say. I think it was a really hard shoot. I know mm-hmm. I don't know if you chatted to the other so guys. talked with
1: all the other guys. Yeah, it's, yeah. it
4: was a tough shoot. But from from the art department side, it was actually pretty good because they were shooting nights and long long hours into the nights and everything. But we were, you know, because it's mostly studio-based movie, you could really control what you saw. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a challenge getting it ready in time because we had a very, I don't know if you know how little time we had. We had a really, I had 10 weeks and my art director came on with eight, only eight weeks of prep.
1: And for the, the de- amount of detail that you put into this from the standpoint of production design... Is amazing. I mean, our first images of seeing Eliza's apartment—it is absolutely gorgeous. The texture within there, and all the individual little little touches. But then we see Giles' apartment, and you see they're two sides of a coin. And this is the only relationship she has in her life. This is the only one. Yes. And vice versa. But you start with that glorious picture window that part of it's in hers, part of it's in his, and together... They become one. You can just imagine. bigger together. The metaphor is beautiful. But then how you go and then distill that and break that down and create these two separate worlds that are still symbiotic. Then you create another world oh, wow. between Eliza and the creature... In the lab. Yeah. And it is fabulous. How do you approach... But these three sets in particular, and then the theater itself, are just exquisitely done. How do you approach... You sit down and approach this from a storytelling standpoint.
4: Um, Well, Guillermo when he was writing the story, had picked a building in Toronto for the exterior of uh, her apartment. Of course he did. Um, it, it was a place called Massey Hall. It's a, it's built in 1894 or 1896, I'm not percent sure. Um, and it was never a movie house. It was never a, a, a theater. It's actually a music hall. It was only for musical performance. It's a stage, but it's music. Um, but what he did like about it was he liked the, the period. He liked it that it was from that time period. And so then when we... Translate that into the setting for her apartment above a theater. It's 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 that gorgeous romantic notion um, that 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 we see in this film, um, or or it allowed us to make that that or make that design for, for that film. Um, and then we wanted to obviously contrast that to the lab. If We stick with stick with her apartment for a minute. Um, so once once it was decided that you know he loved the staircases basically, right? He wanted to come out above the cinema you see it all in real you don't have to like there was not it was right in your face you could see that she comes out she looks obviously right above the movie theater and down she comes and, and you can see the environment of that chocolate factory burning I mean mm-hmm. that, that 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 idea that Giles is talking about ah I do you even have the smell of burnt cocoa you know like yeah. that, it's such a visual thing you, know, you don't even like that's not a visual it's a it's a you, you can't smell it, but but you—it's it's a, a very is. descriptive. Thing. You can imagine what that that sort of smells like. And it's, a, it's a smell that you wouldn't ever think about, and the fact that he's nobody's even looking at the fire. You know, it's just—it's a just it's it's one of these little Guillermo fan, you know, one of these like <laughs> these, these lovely notions that he, that he has, you know, romantic notions. Anyway, because he had decided uh, the outside, we knew what the inside should start with, and 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 the idea was. That there was once a grand room above this theater used for you know social events or something like that when it was a theater way back when. And then at some point in the sort of late 20s, our backstory was it got it turned into a talkie theater. It was split in half or almost in half, truncated into two parts. And one side kind of remained with the old wallpapers and everything from the end of the 19th century. The other side from the 20s got a little bit more modified and... The wallpapers in there, the warmer colors we chose ended up being the, the designs were from the Deco period and the mm-hmm. moldings from the middle of the, the middle corridor that the new wall were from the twenties. So we had the old sort of Victorian kind of mouldings and then the twenties kind of moldings. The idea was that at some point there was film stored in her side. There's little details in there that there there are racks that used to house film canisters, but they then now she shoes on, shoes on them because she's got this little shoe fetish. She has not, not much means, but she one thing she does love is her shoes. And then the other side, Giles' side was could be potentially was an office or something at the time from the twenties, and and it it, Giles has a ton of stuff. You know, his is that warm mustard gold kind of environment. Hers is that cool aqua kind of colors, Mm -hmm. and that was important to Cameron, important to the the storytelling. And you know, Dan Lauston lit that one side, uh, Eliza's side with this cool blue. Always, you always wanted to feel like you were in a watery world. Mm -hmm. And then the empathetic characters, we kind of made all in this mustard golds, browns. Um, warm warm colors and Dan also in combination lit with a it's uh, uh, more of a morning sun kind of feel in, in Hofstetter's apartment which you know you think of him as like kind of the bad guy he's like the Cold War spy Russian spy but in the end you know his love for science and, and empathy yeah, comes is. through oh. so I, we made sure that he kept the colors for him in that palette Zelda's at the very end is a little darker version of all that but that's also she's the empathetic character friend of Eliza the help help again. The three of those helpers, Giles and they all come from that same color palette and then when we go to the other world you were talking about which is the um, lab, uh, it's you know, at, when I first met with Guillermo he had had some sketches done early about what the tank and, might, the, tank and the environment of the pool might be but we didn't really have, there was no envelope so the, the language of the envelope hadn't mm-hmm. been figured out and he had actually had an early drawing, he, he wanted to evoke storytelling of of future thinking um, uh, science war through the murals uh, and and they were like WPA style murals from the late 30s or Diego Rivera kind of style uh, painterly murals and and Guy Davis had done kind of some early schemes that Mm. told that story and told the the, the love of science and war and and all that but it didn't really suit the architecture that we ended up uh, going for um Guillermo and I talked about what we wanted the how to contrast that the beautiful romantic side to this, with with this science lab, and it could have been this cold white sterile science lab, like that's kind of normal as well, but then we ended up wanting to tell it, give it much more depth and feeling and grit but still be a bit oppressive and, 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 and heavy handed in a way, and so you know we settled on brutalist architecture, which is very prevalent from the 50s, 60s, and 70s as institutional architecture. I mean, I went to architecture school, and I studied my building. was a brutalist-style uh, architecture. I, I, I saw the beauty in it, but most people thought, thought of it as a big, concrete, ugly, ugly bunker. But there was a lot of warmth and beauty in it mm-hmm. as well. So uh, that's what we decided to settle on for, for um, the, the OCAM lab-style so then, then that WPA-style painterly mural that Guillermo had in his mind didn't, to me, really work. So I brought some examples of um, um, wall, ceramic wall murals from Europe, mostly in Europe. You know, the Soviet era had a, a lot. And, but the, the ones I sat along was some from Lisbon that looked pretty interesting. So I took some of the styles from that, and then we, we translated the same story that was on that painterly style of murals into the sort of ceramic murals. And, you know, Guillermo, Guillermo actually hates that style of, of, of mural he even said so last night but it suited the it suited the architecture that we had decided upon mm-hmm. for that that aspect of our um, uh, of, of the, the the film so you know Strickland his office I put it up high because he in his his character he's a, a nasty character he, he looks down upon everyone he seems I like, like he's above everyone and so literally I put him above everyone in that you know he's like he, you know he just really is a that kind of character so his office, which we spent a lot of time in, is, is up top, overlooking, overlooking you know the minions down below. However, we wanted I wanted some beauty out there and, and a bit of storytelling, and that's where those murals ended up. They ended up high, that we would never see when we we're down low, but when we we're in his office looking out those that angled window, we always had that that mural, three sided mural up, up top. And then when we and then that sort of teal green color that, that you know in the script it says green is the color of the future, the Cadillac dealership. Our salesman, I should say, tells that to Strickland while he's looking for that perfect car for the family, that nuclear family. Um, and so that color, Guillermo, only wanted to have like that as the main color in this lab. And and we painstakingly went through many samples to get a color that he liked. That we we shot a location for part of this. Uh, we shot um, the exterior was this Brutalist building called the Andrews Building at the University of Toronto that we used for the arrival. From the bus, mm-hmm. and we used it for the, un, the underground stuff. Could have been anywhere, I suppose. But, but the loading bay and everything where they crashed the car, and we also used it for there's a long hallway that we had. We built it in an automat, you know, one of these futuristic things. Even though the automats actually came from earlier, they came from the 20s yeah. in New York, but but they were still around in the in the 50s. And it was kind of this automated, sort of Jetsony kind of idea that your food comes out of these things. So we created one of those. In, in, a, in an alcove on this location to help expand our studio sets because we you know, we only could build so much but we wanted to make this facility seem rather big. Digitally, Dennis Barardi, and Mr. X extended the hallway but but the rest of it was all practical so we wanted to exploit this this architecture of this location and that influenced the design of the, mm-hmm. the interior. Um, but uh, we also used this other location uh, called the Hearn. It's a power station, Hearn generating station. It's an abandoned... Or closed down power generating station from the, built in the 50s. And they had this bathroom, tiled bathroom, and tiled um, locker room that was another set in our movie. But the tiles were cream color. You know, they, were, they were in the wrong palette. And so Guillermo insisted that we get permission to paint them. So we, we got, I mean, it was a, the building is basically, you know, it's going to be torn down at some point or transferred. It doesn't really matter that much. There were no lockers or anything in there. We had to bring all those yeah. lockers and paint them all in our color scheme. But the Scenics had to hand paint for three days. They hand painted every tile to, to match the color. You know, we I ended up using that tile as the size that we put in the lab in the set. So we all we you know have to tie in all these locations mm-hmm. together. So we believe that we're in the same place. So uh, <laughs> the poor guys had to paint every single tile by hand because you can't just spray it because you, you can't paint the grout because the grout would yeah the just, grout would look has terrible. To if stay. You just, yeah, yeah, you just paint it over. The green grout wouldn't give it away, but we they ended up hand painting. Oh my god but it worked because it really it really made everything tie together you know and that was very important Gemma had to have that right color because mm-hmm. that was part of the story um, and that's showing you know the color for the color in this movie is quite important to help tell mm-hmm. the story and then red was used very sparingly red was the doors for her apartment there's a little bit of red down the sort of burgundy red down her hallway and then she covets these red shoes in a store window a, in a, in and a, a red and then she red, gets she a red headband yeah. yeah, little details like that and Lewis Louis incorporated more red than I did. Uh, the red, for me, was only the, the doors of the mm-hmm. theater and, of course, the inside of the theater. The grand theater we picked was all red anyway. The seats were red. So that was like those... You know, Gamer was very very uh, vocal about his colors, and, and that, which is great. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, color... You can spend a lot of time thinking about color and, and if he's already come up with a basic direction and mm-hmm. theme, it makes the life of a designer a lot easier. And mm-hmm. then you can please him better by knowing that he's going to want to
1: be in that range already, you know, so. There we go. Pam's futzing around on the floor. We're hearing from people that something is wrong on the AdrenalineRadio.com site. Um, They're not hearing or they're not seeing something. So Nick and Pam are trying to resolve that issue. But don't worry. Because later on this afternoon, you'll be able to hear the whole show on BehindTheLensOnline.net. We, we are also now, uh, starting this week, uh, you can find the show on Stitcher. We are on iTunes on Tuesdays, as well as IndiePopcorn.fm. So you can find the show just about anywhere. And then probably sometime mid-next week, Lydia will have the video edits done. And you can also then find the show on YouTube under Elias Entertainment, Behind the Lens, uh, and eventually on BehindTheLensOnline.net. We pop the videos on there, too. But, all right. Okay, Pam, I see a second phone ringing. So uh, (laughs) it means we have one caller. (gasps) Our mystery guest. Sign in, please. And Pam's going to connect the two of them right now. And bring them live. And I am so excited. Hello? I have I, I hear you. I have two of my favorite people. Phil Aloka, are you there?
5: I'm here. Hi. Fran. Nice to talk to you. Fran? Hey, what's up, man? How are you, Phil? Hi, Debbie. How are
1: Hi. You? I am so excited to have the two of you on for our last show of the year. This this is fabulous. Oh wow,
5: and occasion. That's great.
1: Well, you know, Phil was on during year one of the show. Was it year one? yeah, during year one of the show? you were on in September of
0: 2015, Phil when Wow, the, I can't believe it. Wow.
1: when the truth about lies was still on the festival circuit, you were on just before it was going to show at the Hollywood Film Festival:
5: Oh, oh wow, great. cool wow. Wait, that was that was 2016 15 sixteen 15: 15 Wow, we've been around forever.
1: And of course, Fran, <laughs> you and I got to talk at great length in June at LA Film Festival about a film that you know I love, A Midsummer's Night Dream. Yes, that you and Casey, yeah, did. Midsummer,
5: And we just got bought. We coming <gasps> out. we have a theatrical release in the spring. I can't. I don't have a release date yet, but there's just recent news, so that's exciting. Yeah. Oh,
1: you just so, gave good luck.
5: Oh, that. congrats,
0: Fran.
1: This you just gave me yeah, the thanks, greatest man. the greatest Christmas present, Fran. Oh my oh, god!
5: Yeah. Well, no, no, I mean it. You might, you must be good luck. Although I feel like we're we're closing out like the worst year, in, like on on the uh, human recorded history or something, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but that's that's why we need films like uh, like your A Midsummer's Night Dream and The Truth About Lies more than ever. People need that beauty and escapism.
5: Yeah! 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 So I am. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, I, I, you know, not to like—I don't mean to cut you off—but I, 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 I've been doing, you know, press for the movie *Truth About Lies*, and you know, I, there's always some point where I, I don't want to take it too seriously and put too, you know, heavy a point on it. But you know, Phil has these great title cards throughout the film about you know great quotations and maxims about lying and dishonesty throughout human nature, and now we sort of live in this <laughs> in this kind of like. Bizarre, 1984, sort of, you know, dystopian future present, you know, where where we have no idea what's true and sort of information is sort of is all opinionated, and so it's kind of funny. It's kind of like a very uh, contemporary film. This, this like is in a time capsule. The, the, the aliens one day they colonize <laughs> this planet will you know take this film really seriously, like <laughs> you know anthropological hey friend, study. You know,
0: I, you know they may see hey friend, it. T- I thought. <laughs> I thought it was funnier back then. Now I'm not. Now it's uh. Now it's not. It doesn't seem as funny the uh, line thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 But the right.
1: thing. But the thing is, the it-
0: aliens will
5: still give us a bad review. So. Still, <laughs> you know, so, so yeah.
1: No, Fran. No, Fran. They're gonna. They're gonna find the time capsule and then they're just gonna blow it up so that they never have to look at it again. <laughs>
5: Yeah, <laughs> right. right. a huge mistake I'll opening this thing. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, I want I
1: <laughs> talk about Fran. Talk about the character of Gilby Smalls. This is not a character that we're used to seeing from you. Gilby is. I mean, he's charming. You carry the film essentially. This rides oh, This rides on your back, and Phil knows. I've said this before that you know if your casting and your performance fell short everything revolves around the disaster in Gilby's life. So if Gilby, but you have to be a a hapless kind of likable guy to pull this off with everything that Gilby is attempting to do while he loses his job and the girlfriend and he burns his apartment down. You know,
5: just little things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, you know I remember when and I first talked we, we talked over the phone and, and I, I remember some of the names being thrown out kind of Woody Allen and Owen Wilson. I think oh you know Owen Wilson has this wonderful carefree attitude that makes sort of everything he does, charming, even if, you know, for instance, like a wedding crasher, if it's immoral or, you know, whatever, he is, he has this, like you said, a good hapless kind of carefree quality, like bottle rocket is such a great performance that mm-hmm. um, he's so likable, even committing crimes, you know? And so, uh, I love that. And then placed with this kind of terrible luck and neurotic nature of a Woody Allen kind of archetype, you know, um, and and it, it the, the, we kinda of tried to form something there. But then, you know, meeting Phil, once we sort of got to know each other, you because know, everything it moves fast in the independent film world as we all know. And and once I sort of met Phil, I kind of tried to incorporate some of that into the performance because so much of Gilby really is is
0: Phil, you know,
5: so and for better or worse, <laughs> I think that yes. a lot of these stories are from Phil's life. And uh so, so that became that kind of I had the I had the biggest inspiration on set with me. So a lot of things kind of changed or evolved um, in real time, learning some of these kind of stories from film incorporating. So it, it, when I watch the movie, I can kind of see all these things happening. I, I sometimes I sort of cringe because I you know I, as an actor I wish it would could have been like more uniform from the beginning um but it, it it blends together nicely but i in my opinion i'll like find little moments where i'm like oh that, that's clearly me you know trying to heart you know channel this you know or whatever you know but but it, it ultimately was such a fun character because there were sort of no limitations on what i could do or say because the guy was willing to do or say anything to sort of get Get by, you know, not mm-hmm. not so much even get his way because Gilby's so down on his luck. It's sort of a survival mechanism to lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what I think makes it a little <laughs> more charming than just being a jerk, you know.
1: Well, that's just it. Gilby is never a jerk, and that is due to not only your performance, Fran, but Phil in in the scripting and your dialogue. Gilby yeah. is never a jerk. You know, even when we well, even when he gets caught in lies and we know things are falling apart. You can't help but like the guy.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think a, a lot of that is also just Fran is just so charming, and I think that was always that was always a challenge. We knew in the beginning, because you know, obviously, this character—it's like he, he's challenged, he's unlikable, he's flawed, and we knew that was uh, always going to be a challenge. And I think Brian uh, and I talked about that earlier. Just like let's just um, you know embrace it and. You know, and we had fun just pushing how absurd we could be um, with with these scenes. And uh, and Fran, you know, I just can't say mm-hmm. enough about his ability. I mean, as a director, when you work with yeah. someone like Fran, it's like driving a sports car. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> anything you ask, he can do. It's amazing.
1: But now, is it a new sports uh, car or right. a very old, broken down one? Let's clarify this. <laughs> no, yeah, no definitely, very very
0: high yeah, tech. I'd yeah. say high tech, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that a lot of credit
5: goes to obviously Phil and the script. His sort of Phil was such a wonderful uh, a director on set, obviously knowing and having such ownership of the material, but being like so, so encouraging of letting us explore and do things. Um, but also, you know, the cast—they—they, they, you know, we would run into situations on set where we felt, God, is this believable? Like Gilby when he, when uh, Gildy and Rachel are Odette, Annabelle and I, we go out to dinner at, after a yoga class, and it's this kind of what a vegan, raw vegan kind of cuisine, and Gildy's totally grossed out, <laughs> and he eats a whole spoonful of wasabi, and, and it's this kind of really big moment um, that we on set all of a sudden, so how on earth is this, is, is Rachel not going to notice his discomfort and him, you know, dying from the wasabi, like the burning. And so a lot of the times, that's, that's just one example, but a lot of times a lot of the humor and a lot of selling the script really depended on the supporting caster. And, and Odette, you know, she's the cook, she's the lead star with me as well. But, you know, a lot of these scenes really depended on the cast being able to create performances that complemented the action in Guilty so well. Like Chris, the antopolis does such a great job of just being enough of a jerk or just enough self absorbed that we we still stay on guilty side, you know, that he's mm-hmm. you know, stealing the wife or stealing the job, but, but it's like you just he plant just enough seeds of like, oh, now I understand how he gets into this ridiculous situation. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of credit for the cast. Yeah.
1: Well you know, I'm glad you brought that what? up, Fran, because you know, one of the real standouts, you bring in a Phil Cass a veteran like Colleen Camp. You know what? Oh, yeah. do, what does that do for somebody like you, who already has a ton of experience under his belt, but you bring in a veteran like Colleen, who
5: just—yeah—I
1: mean, you get to play opposite her. What does that do to you as an actor in terms of affecting and elevating your performance?
5: Well, it's always—it's always inspiring having you know those uh, those veteran actors on a set. It's, you know, film sets can get long and tedious, long, like long hours, late nights, you know, long waits, you know, for lights, whatever it is. Um, to, to have someone with that kind of wealth of experience, knowledge, or honestly just funny stories, you know what I mean? So much of a film set kind of ends up being people around, sitting around, talking and waiting, you know? And so to have someone, a character, and the kind of wonderful person like Colleen Camp, you know, it, it goes such a long way for morale, uh, let alone her talent and what she brought in the performance and all of that is so wonderful. The relationship with Gilby and his mom—it—it—it it, it, it gives heart to the story. You know that mm-hmm. otherwise might be perceived as sort of a superficial romantic comedy. At the end of the day, you do have—even if it's a kind of B storyline—you there is a real sort of there's a story about a son searching for his father. You know, and that mm-hmm. is, there's there's a universal quality in that that everyone will relate to and. You no know, matter how how many jokes you play play, you know, or try to get out of it, it's still something that that resonates, you know. Um, and so to have Colleen be able to navigate that as well as she could, and then to offer just her wonderful personality on set, it goes a long, it goes a really really long way. So mm-hmm. it's always. Um, it's a kind of kind of crucial I think you know for filmmakers out there <laughs> you know, get, get your veteran actor on set and it, you know and it, it'll save you it'll sort of it, it, give you give your crew and cast resilience you know for the, for the days of the harder days you know
1: well that, that's like the other week <laughs> Randall Battenkoff was on the show uh, talking about his the, his latest movie um, you know that starred Florence Henderson. Florence, uh, and th- that was like a dream come true for him. And he was saying very similarly, you get a veteran like that on set and it changes the whole dynamic.
5: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, you know, it's kind of wonderful in this shoot because we had the, the movie, you know, we had different actors, different supporting roles and different periods in the four or five week shoot. I think it was a five week shoot. So, you know, you, you sort of, uh, it was always a really great, refreshing energy because you'd have a new really fun character or actor come on, even if it was just for a day, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? We'd always, you know, Laura Keitlinger or or, um, Adam David Thompson, and Christian, you know, whoever it was coming in for the day or week was always this kind of new, fun energy that kind of was always really revitalizing. Which is kind of, which is a wonderful thing for a film, you know, because you can get bogged down with the monotony of days easily. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Phil, I'm curious because this was your fir- your feature film debut. I mean, you've got a wealth of experience coming out. You know, writing. Um, you were. We talked about it before. You were a participant in the On the Lot project over at Fox. Um, you have done commercials. You've done so many things, but here. This is really a lot of visual comedy. How do you as a director, does this affect your approach to a project when you know so much of this rises and falls on the visual comedy
0: as well as the script? That's a great point. And, you know, again, I I think one of the big um, challenges I had right from the beginning was the right lead. And and I think that's why I like Fran was like an answer to uh, our prayers you know to someone who could be you know your, your lead sets the tone for the whole clock um, task for for how much you can push it and you know I think we were a little we were kind of ambitious that we wanted to do be able to pull really slapstick kind of crazy moments and mm-hmm. but then also have moments that were more grounded in reality but ultimately the whole thing had to still work and still feel believable like Fran was saying and and I think um, I think having Fran and then Odette, they had such great chemistry from the beginning. So that really helped and allowed a lot of these things to be able to be broad. And I think and one of the things Odette really we kind of discovered is that um, Odette, the way we she played it is that she never bought any of his BS
1: ever. Mm-hmm.
0: And that kind of helped it also because she was kind of in on the joke. And we also made I feel made uh Gilby a little bit more um, likable because we knew he didn't take it too serious either. Mm-hmm. I mean, although everyone's lying in the film, this isn't the kind of lies that, you know, are, you know, these moral kind of, you know, murder or really high stakes lies. These are the little kind of white lies that we do to kind of just get through the day um, and not offend people. And then they kind of get out of hand and catch up with you. It was kind of that kind of uh you know mm-hmm. uh, aspect and i think i think um i think f- Fran being able to be so broad and then their chemistry really allowed us to take more chances and be crazier and then after a while we just started having fun and just pushing it and pushing it uh and for me it was just a real dream yeah. because it was uh just a great fun experience
1: you know i want to ask both yeah. of you because Fran you're a producer on a midsummer's night dream phil you're writer director producer here on truth about lies you have both now gone through this process of the festival circuit and then finding distribution you know you i mean i have to say phil you lucked out with blue fox the guys at blue fox are fabulous i've spoken with with yeah. uh, todd before and with james and they're wonderful and their merger with level 33 And Andreas is just, I think, a great, great move for independent film. But it's their distribution process that is so good. And now, Fran, and now you get a distribution with A Midsummer's Night Dream. Yay! Uh, So, (laughs) you know, what is this, as producers, what is this experience like going through this this distribution chain, trying to get a deal?
0: Well, I'm... Um, um, I would say it's very tough. And I think like it's... One of the things that state. I think like, is so tough positive, about it is the really industry keeps changing <laughs> so fast, too. Yeah, I, I mean... Are, uh,
5: sorry, what did you say? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I'm saying it's tough, and I think because also the industry's changing so fast. So things, you know, oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. certain things that worked a year ago might not work now, and, and you just always hear things are changing. But I think I think for any filmmaker, uh, you know, when you find any kind of team that believes in the the film, and I think that's the most important. And you never know where that came. I had advice to me that, you know, when I was uh, going through that, that, the, you know, saying, look, the film will find its way and it will find the right situation. And, and in our case, you know, it was a very... Kind of a uh, weird experience that you know. Just you know, Todd and James, we didn't have any relationship. It just kind of happened. Uh, they just found the film mm-hmm. and uh, and really yeah. believed in it, and that was a great great thing. Um, so it can happen in all different ways, but it's it's tough. I, I can't I can't pretend it's not incredibly tough. <laughs>
5: <laughs> you know, what about it, for you, Fran? Yeah, you know, there's I. Uh, it, it's not unlike being an actor with an agency. Um, you know, you you, and, and instinct like your instinct is, or, or an actor is going to want to be at CAA and UTA and W. You're going to want to be at the biggest agencies, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but
5: the reality is, the, the relationship it's about is the, how much the agent cares, likes you, is passionate about you. You right. could be at a smaller agency, and if that guy or woman, whoever is working their ass off then it makes such a difference that the person at whatever, WME, is not making the calls and doing the work. It's not going to matter. So a a smaller distribution company, they can't guarantee, you know, a theatrical release in so many states, but they're going to make their best effort, will actually probably go a longer way than someone who sort of can guarantee whatever 10 states but won't do anything, you know, it won't put in the legwork to sort of care and, and show passion about the film so from a lot of small films in you know, thousands a year or whatever, uh, that's going to be a difference thing and it's hard to sort of not be tempted into the more household names or something like that. But I agree. As far as sort of Mr. Nightingale, I was shocked because I, I was, you know, I assume Shakespeare has been around and produced for hundreds of years. Everyone knows Shakespeare, but apparently, according to distribution <laughs> companies, no one likes Shakespeare. And so, <laughs> no one wants to watch Shakespeare, and no one wants to buy Shakespeare. And, <laughs> so, you know, Shakespeare doesn't sell. So a lot of things like that, like it, it, it is bizarre how it's apparently like nothing. Nothing is worth buying anymore. (laughs) Well, you
1: you know, and I mean, Fran, you know, I mean, I am a huge, huge fan of A Midsummer's Night Dream. Also, I was a huge fan of Much Ado. And I said with both films, if you could get these films into the hands of, you know, high school students, junior high students, they would fall in love with Shakespeare. Anybody. You watch these films and they would fall in love with Shakespeare. And... Yeah. It, and I wish more people would be willing to take that leap because you see Apparently,
5: film um Julie Kmore, yeah, did a, a, I wanna say a winter sale. or um, it's, it's not the Tempest that she did. She did something else recently. Yeah, and I probably shouldn't even promote it anyway. So uh, uh, <laughs> but she Apparently, she made up all of her money from universities and high schools and DVDs and on demand. That every, that, that when it finally came down to it years later, all the sort of profit from the film ended up from schools, which is really cool and really awesome. But again, it sort of goes to show that it's not, it's about finding the way and the right home for it. And it's not, you, you know, everyone's going to think like, let's, let's get it on whatever, Netflix, Amazon, and get it in the theaters, blah, blah, blah. And like, an audience will find the days, so, you know, I think that's why there's so much content It's because it, it, people, there are people that will watch it if it's just out there, you know. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a sort of harder journey to sit through as a filmmaker, but I, I think it still can be satisfying, you
1: know. Well, and I, with The Truth About Lies and having Todd and James and the team at Blue Fox behind it, I know what you had a theatrical release for a week in October,
0: Yes. Yeah, we uh, oh, right. actually yeah. went all the way through um, to November, and we actually yeah. went up to twenty-five states at one point, which was that's really great. cool. That's, so that was nice. That's great. incredible.
1: That is incredible. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, uh, and I'm Absolutely. and you know, that's one reason I'm so happy that Blue Fox picked up Truth About Lies, because Gravitas is a great champion of indie films, but. For most yeah. of the Gravitas releases, I don't see they. You know, they show the films. Love you, you get your week theatrical. You expand to a few states, but to expand twenty five states, that is amazing. That is yeah, amazing right. in
5: yeah. this so day Navitas, and age.
0: Gravitas is
5: the boost mobile of distribution companies. I was <laughs> <I'm just> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little inside joke for film. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if yeah. you remember that film. Um, Anyway oh but yeah and yeah. <laughs> no, no, yeah, they're all great,
0: but <laughs> but no I mean, no, but it, it, and, and go ahead, Phil and it is <laughs> tough i mean the the windows are so um you know so so short um, they get shorter and shorter people's attention span to you know I mean we just have we're just bombarded with so many avenues for content, so that's a blessing because there's more content and more places to see it, but it also makes it harder to get Attention, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so some distribu- distributors, they yeah, they just focus on it, put it out a week, and then it's done. They're on to the next, you know.
1: No, that's and that's what I. That's why I, I love this. I love this idea of Blue Fox having Truth About Lies because they go the they go the extra mile with the films that right, they that exactly. they're handling. And yeah,
5: the difference yeah. is just fulfilling your obligation and caring about the the, the content. I guess you know. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I'm curious, how, now, Phil, I know you're moving on to another project. You're working on, what, five pounds of pressure? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and Fran, you go from something, you know, a rom-com that, that's light, like The Truth About Lies, and you jump just as easily into Shakespeare. You know, I mean, uh-huh. what are, what are the next stepping stones for both of you? Uh, especially Phil, working on this new project, which I better get to see when you're finished. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just putting it out there. Just putting it out there. But yeah, you know, so
0: absolutely <laughs> <You> kidding me. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: you guys know I'll see oh. everything that you do. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm, cu- I'm curious. Uh, no, yeah. You know where where you're going? You know because you have a stepping stone like this. You've been riding patiently, riding the truth about lies. You know, wave for a couple years. Now it's out there for everyone to see. You know, in the meantime, you're picking up other small. You're gearing up for a, a film, Fran. You've been picking up other stuff on the side. So how do you how do you juggle and move forward with these stepping stones?
0: Um, with uh, uh, a kind of uh, yeah, fear and trepidation. <laughs>
5: sorry, sorry,
1: You want to go? Two of my favorite words, fear and trepidation. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Fran? Because so good. Because you just, you are as much at ease in a black and white Joss Whedon, much, much ado as you are in, you know, Cabin in the Woods, as you are in, in Shakespeare in A Midsummer's Night, or, you know, in a rom-com like Truth About Lies. You just... You seamlessly go uh, from. Well, thanks.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I've always I, you know, I think just uh, growing up, trying to trying to act in in school, you know, one of the fun things about college or high school, or whatever you're, you're doing you're doing plays that are not age-appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you do a high school play, so there's always a the guy playing the old man, you know, things like that. But it, but it sort of builds this foundation of sort of thinking you can do anything, which is nice. And, and a, for an actor to have confidence and feel, believe that they are versatile and is, is, a, is a really, I think, important thing, you know? And then as you sort of start doing work professionally in, in film and television as well as theater, you kind of flex different muscles and, and, and get different fulfillment out of the different mediums. And so I think, at least for me, uh, I, I always, you know, look for something different after, from the previous job, whether it's something of comedy or drama or literally, you know, a play versus television. And I just, just closed last week a play off Broadway at the Public Theater, which was a, a real sort of a, a serious, conversational play called Illyria by Richard Nelson and and his work, you know, he's, he's like a sort of American checkoff. It's extreme naturalism, like hyper realism, you know? So it's people sitting around a table eating and talking for like two hours. So so I, I, you know, when fully embraced that, and love doing that. And so now I'm, I'm probably very much in the mood for, you know, a really dumb, TV shows, you know what I mean, just sort <laughs> something <laughs> it, really light, really silly, and 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 I think I think bouncing from one end of the spectrum that way I think allows me to sort of give the most I can, you know, mm-hmm. because it sort of allows the sort of most that that kind of change is inspiring and makes me kind of passionate about a project, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, and for you, what about for you, Phil? Because you know, for the longest, you're doing commercials, you're doing this, you're doing that. You finally do your feature film. You know, now you're jumping into five pounds of pressure. So do you see yourself switching things up? Do you see yourself moving forward with features? What has this stepping stone now led you to?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the next film is a drama. So just like Fran, I think, um, you know, I want to try to do something uh, different that I uh, haven't done before. Because I think... I think part of this, this, the whole experience of making films is so arduous and it takes such a long time and so much energy that I think there is also like kind of a thrill seeking adventure to it um, for um, us as filmmakers, you know, because, you know, yes, you you do make choices and you're like, you know, where you're thinking career and and thinking finance is a point, but other big part of it, too, because it's just so much such a big part of your life that. Uh, It has to be something that excites you. So, um, so I'm doing this drama, and um, and you know, and I I still have uh, interest in also pursuing other uh, comedies as well. But you know, you want to do something different each time, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, have you started shooting?
1: Have you started shooting Five Pounds of Pressure yet, or where are you at in that? No,
0: no, no. We're just starting the uh, casting process.
1: Hear that, Fran? Hear that? Oh, yeah.
5: (laughs) He, I they already uh,
0: passed. They already, you know, I submitted it. It was a hard pass. yeah. Oh my god! That, that's oh, so funny. that that is. Uh, Fran, that's. I, I would love to work with Plan again. He, he's he's he is like you know you're you're he's a dream. He's like you know the director. Like make. Oh, he always made my job so much easier because he was just so great. You know. Um, <laughs> And that's that's the kind of actor you dream to work
1: with. You know, before we're out of time on the show today, I want to ask each of you, because it is the holiday season, be it Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, whatever, I want to ask each of you, what is the greatest gift that the industry gives to you? Fran, what is the greatest gift acting gives you? And and Phil, what is the greatest gift that writing and directing gives to you?
5: Oh, wow. Um, Residuals.
1: Hey, that's a good one.
0: Uh, no,
5: um, no. I mean, I, you know, honestly, like uh, at the end of the day, it's you. You're, you get to you get to do what you love. You know, you get to you're paid. You make a living. Do what you love. Doing what you love, and uh, it's a kind of absurd notion that, unfortunately, I think in the daily routine of it, you take for granted, and and you'll 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 turn it into a job. But it's it's truly a, it truly is a sort of a dream come true, you know, to be able to do this professionally and work with such incredible creative people. To sort of to call to call this outlet uh, work is is
0: a sort of is a, just a blessing. Yeah. And what about for you, Phil? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, I I I haven't had um, as many experiences as a friend, which he's done so much amazing, huge body of work. But um, just that even in the amount of work I've done, it's the the people you get to meet, the experiences you get to have, and and making a film, I mean, you really are creating this world and uh, and I, I really feel like the 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 experience itself and again the relationships you have, they they sometimes they become like, you know, a big part of your life and, and sometimes you, you you run into like a lifelong friend from all of these experiences. So what more could you ask out of something from life, you know. Mm-hmm. So I find it very inspiring, all the ups and the downs, all of it.
1: So now where can everybody see the truth about lies right now?
0: Well, it's on um, oh, gosh. iTunes, Amazon, all the on-demand platforms. Yeah. So um, you can uh, yeah, right. see it on any of those and on that, you, and so, and most you know, of the on-demand cable you know channels.
5: Oh, sorry. Do you know if it's in a theater in any state still, or no, or is it is it pass now?
0: Um, I I I know there's another. I think in New Hampshire it's still playing, in New Hampshire in January. But I don't I don't know uh, what other theaters are still what it's still in.
1: But you know that doesn't but matter. I think it's mostly there's...
0: on demand now.
1: And because since we are yeah. in the holiday, a lot of people are going to be off the next couple weeks. They're going to be home. I can't think of anything better than for them to go plunk down a couple dollars and sit at home have have a drink hang out with friends and watch the truth about lies
0: you know it's so I funny to i totally way agree with that you know, I think that's such a great idea. Isn't
1: that a great idea? <laughs> <But>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> Stay out yeah, of the yeah. theaters and the yeah. Star Wars crowds. Stay home and watch the Truth About Lies. It's that simple. Yes. Look yes. at that. We have solved the problem for everybody's movie going <laughs> over the next kinda, couple weeks. What friend? It'd
5: be fun to get a Star Wars crowd. You know, with those packed Star Wars audiences. And, and lock them in the theater and actually play Truth About Lies, you know? So, yeah, that, would cool. <laughs> that would be funny.
1: That would be funny. That would be great. Everyone's in <laughs> costume. Yeah, <everyone's> got... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, unfortunately, we are all out of time. It kills me that I have to say goodbye to you. But I know, Phil, you will come back on the show. And Fran, you better be on the show with Casey when Midsummer Night Dream, you know, comes out in the spring.
5: Absolutely, yeah. We
1: uh, love that. Oh, guys, I can't thank you enough. And you know, Phil, get that well, film ready. You. Get that film ready. I want to see it. So, All right. <laughs>
0: thank you so much.
1: Oh, guys, thank you so much. And I will talk to you both again very soon. Bye, bye. <laughs> bye, bye, Phil. Bye. Bye. And. That was Phil Loco and Fran Kranz talking the truth about lies and all kinds of stuff. Well, that is it. We are out of time. We're three minutes over and Pam's, Pam's making little faces at me that we are three minutes over. But well worth it to have Phil and Fran and kibitz with them about so many things again this is the end of our third year we will be back we do not have a show on christmas day or new year's day we will be back on january the 8th right here to kick off year four as of right now i think that steve alaric is going to be back in studio with me to start the year and we already have some surprises booked for you in january and february so for behind the lens this is debbie elias